We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. All free men, wherever they may live, are citizens of Berlin. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Berliner. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 162, Planetary Postcards, Ansgar Bitterman, Brainstorming in Berlin. Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. Today, Harry and I take you to Berlin, Germany to talk with Ansgar Bittermann, a licensed psychotherapist, data scientist, and brain researcher who's been building data science-related startups and leading companies since 2007. He's worked and taught at the Technical University of Munich, researching how robots can recognize emotions in people and received a couple of awards, including the German Multimedia Award for the development of online trainings to reduce racism based on psychological research. Ansgar has led leadership positions in various companies across Europe for nearly 15 years and has also been a freelance consultant since 2019 when he founded Goldblum Consulting, which is based in Berlin and outsources artificial intelligence and a variety of AI services, including offering psychotherapy to executives and their families. So, it's afternoon here and nighttime in Berlin, and I'm genuinely delighted to reach across the pond and welcome Ansgar to the SIL podcast. Hi, Ansgar. Welcome. Welcome from Berlin. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Our pleasure. Before we get into more about you and your life in Berlin and other countries you've had the pleasure and privilege to visit, I saw a quote which was attributed to you, which I actually experienced viscerally. Your exact words were, where the light shines brightly, the shadows are also more accentuated. Would you care to elaborate on the thought that inspired those words? Well, let's put it this way. If you have a lot of responsibilities or have a lot of power, then it also has a lot of effects on the person itself. And I see it with people who are leading other people who are in the spotlight every day. And that kind of spotlight casts a bright shadow there because people who are in the spotlight in society, they can't behave like other people who enjoy the anonymity of life. Weirdly, a lot of people, the one thing they want is not to be anonymous, but the moment they lose that, they see that immediately also a big part of their freedom is gone. So I think the happiest people are the gray eminencies in the background who have power and still anonymity. Anskar, have you experienced that personally? Yeah, actually, when, when I was young, I mean, that was not spotlight, but um, my parents and my grandparents, they're all teachers. So I was personally also at the same school. So as a son of a teacher at the same school, whatever you do, people always look at you. And then in my later life, when I was leading companies, if you are in a leadership position, whatever you do, people are going to judge you much more freely and quicker than anyone else. That's interesting. Just a follow-up to that, and this might be a strange segue, but can you talk about the culture of Berlin in that same light? Berlin is a world-famous city. It's a world city. 
So it's in a kind of spotlight itself. So can you apply the same sort of thought to the culture that you live in? I think after the Second World War, the perception of Germany and the self-perception of the Germans themselves changed a lot. And we always felt like we were in a spotlight or in a searchlight, if you want to see that, so that the whole world was looking at us and hoping that we don't do anything wrong again. So the same thing which applied to Germany as a whole, uh, but also to Berlin in particular, changed the people. As a German, you could never leave the country, go to other countries and just behave as an individual. You always brought the history of the Third Reich and you always were a representative of your country. I remember that when I was 10 years old, we went to the Netherlands and that was in 1988. And I remember that people started throwing rocks at us and I didn't realize why. And it was because we were Germans. Mm. And so as a German, you always felt like being in a spotlight representing your culture. But when it comes to Berlin, I think it's a little bit special compared to other parts of Germany, because although they're carrying the weight of history, they deal with this weight differently. They don't care that much anymore. And that's what Berlin is known for, not to care too much. You sort of needed that characteristic, didn't you? Because Berlin, east to west, you had two different worlds occupying that space. Yeah, you had two different worlds and uh, we had four different sectors. You had the French, you had the British, you had the English, uh, you had the Russians. And then, of course, they were part of two worlds. And, and then when you slice it more, you also had the anti-war movement of the 70s and 80s. Because every German man had to go to the army. But if you moved to West Germany, you didn't have to go to the army. So you had a lot of people from this peace movement from Western Germany moving to West Berlin. So you, you have this stack of different political views accumulating in Western Germany. And then if you imagine when this big movement of the 60s where a lot of um, Turkish and also Italians, right, came to Germany. So to Berlin was this the wave of Turkish immigrants coming here. So they brought their own system of sometimes uh, colliding worldviews to relatively local-minded Berlin people of the 80s. Mm -hmm. And speaking of these experiences and all these different points of views, we all have mentors and experiences that shape our individual developments. And typically it all begins with the modeling and lessons we learn from our parents or caregivers. Are there any lessons you learned from your parents that were or remain significant in your life? Well, what I learned from my father was never shy away from a confrontation or contact of people who are much higher up in the social hierarchy. And uh, my father had this idea back in the 80s. Uh, now that I'm saying it, I'm realizing <laughs> time has passed a while. So, and he wanted, you know, was before the Berlin Wall when he had this idea to give Gorbachev at that time and Reagan uh, both a pedal as a symbol of we all sitting in the same boat. And he tried that and he actually succeeded with his plan with Reagan. So uh, 1988, he was allowed to meet the American president and uh, give him a pedal. And uh, at that time, he told me that story that Nancy was still whispering a lot of things in Ronald's ear. So <laughs> they've already started some things to go on, but it was a nice 
experience for me because I saw that there might be a lot of ceilings uh, or glass ceilings, but if you're just persistent, you can just uh, push through. Right. Now, speaking of sitting in the same boat, Ansgar, we're all, it seems the globe is sitting in this boat called COVID right now. I'm wondering how the people of Berlin in particular, what their attitude is, if you can generalize, to the COVID situation and to the measures that have been taken to combat this thing. Well, we had to divide in our city. We had on the outer skirts, people were complying with the rules. But in the city center, they just, they hated masks, wearing masks. And <laughs> a lot of people said that uh, COVID measurements are complying to COVID rules. They are uh, corresponding to the educational status. But when I looked at the areas of Vernon, where there was a resistance, it was more that the people who had um, enjoyed higher education that were rather resistant. No. Hmm. Interesting. Are you saying there's a correlation? In your particular case, are you saying that it seemed that the more educated people were, the more resistant they were to this COVID situation? Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Now, also, when you think of COVID, for a lot of people, it's also kind of a coping mechanisms that are required to deal with this. So the opposite of just coping is enthusiastically enjoying and pursuing passions. What lights up your life? Well, I like to do new things. Everything new lights up my life and uh, engaging with that new people, new cultures, new ideas. That's something what really keeps me going. And uh, when we first talked, I really liked having this uh, cosmopolitan mindset, which you are having. So that's really nice. And then you have these other particular things. I really like to play piano. Uh, my grandfather back in the day told me, you have to learn an instrument because if you learn an instrument, you will not take drugs. Maybe not so silly. (laughs) Anskar, this is very interesting because it brings me to a question. When I read about you and your work with robot technology, AI, and psychotherapy and the emotions, I was really fascinated by that. And it was kind of new to me. Can you talk a bit about what kind of work is going on in that area? Well, let's put it this way. When I started studying psychology, when I was young. I Once a month, there was this one charity and they invited interested young people to challenge philosophers once a month for a weekend. And um, so we had these philosophers and debating about uh, Plato and Socrates and Manuel Kant and all the philosophers of the last 2,500 years. And I remember one day there was a scientist, a brain researcher, um, and he came and he completely destroyed the philosopher on stage, because he had um, physical evidence about the things philosophers were fighting about for the last 2,500 years. And that really had an impact on me, because I realized that while a philosopher is talking about free will, a brain researcher could actually prove with brain waves and EGs where free will in your brain is being created. And there's this 150 millisecond gap where your emotions actually pre-decide for you so that you actually think that you have free will. So, and that really fascinated me. And, and then when I realized later on what psychology is, it's actually making the unmeasurable measurable. So it means you spend years and years to be able to give numbers to 
unmeasurable things. And then we are already very, very close to AI because if your brain researching measures stuff, and if you measure something, it has a number. When it has a number, it's like data, right? And AI lives from data. So if I'm just able to make the unmeasurable like emotions measurable, then I can use, for example, the emotion which we detected, we could compile into a three-dimensional space. But this just means in a very simple term that it has an X, a Y, and a Z value. And if something has an X and Y and a Z value, then I can use normal math to basically work on it. And then the emotion of happiness versus anger is just a shift on the X, Y, and Z axis. And uh, that makes it very, very easy to shift, to go from philosophy to psychology to robotics. And what I basically learned when I was at the Technical University in Munich, that a lot of engineers were very interested in this very, let's say, simple approach to emotions so that they as engineers could approach human emotions easier. And then uh, it was very, very funny. It was very funny to, to teach humans human emotion, which they as engineers didn't really grasp. That's why they became engineers, because they could work with machines. Right, mm -hmm. right. And so how do robots then recognize human emotion? How do they translate the X, Y, Z of it into a recognition of the emotion? Well, you have several techniques. So you basically every sense you have as a human, you can also give to a robot. For example, we take an image of you smiling or frowning, and then I'm telling the robot, look at the area of the face. And I give the robot hundred different pictures of a person smiling. And then the robot builds his own rule, set of rules for what a smiling face is. And then that smiling face, uh, I say, okay, this belongs to the emotion of happiness. And so there are some hotspot areas in your face, which are determined for emotions. So it's your eyes, it's your uh, forehead, it's your cheeks, it's your mouth. So, and then basically you take that picture, break it apart to these hotspot areas, assign a value to them, and then later on just say, okay, happy is this value and uh, anger is that value. With AI nowadays, with this uh, deep learning approach and machine learning approach, makes it relatively easy to recognize emotions. Because you can fake emotions very, very easily in your face. I mean, because you can control your face. So if somebody's a, a good liar, they can fake their emotions. And I always liked uh, truth and transparency much more. So basically what I pursued is to detect emotions out of the gate of a person. And so if somebody goes down the hallway, if you put a camera on him or on her, it's much, much harder to fake that kind of emotion. And then you're coming pretty close to a lie detector. And that's pretty interesting in different settings of this world. So I guess all this is possible because you have to have such a vast amount of information and nuance that the computing power is really what allows all this to happen, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But nowadays, I mean, even 2006, the computing power was much lower. I mean, now your iPhone, iPhone 12, where you can even run simulations on your iPhone. So that's pretty cool. 
So Ansgar, is there a role for AI in dealing with and getting us out of this situation with COVID? Does it have any role to play? It clearly improves or speeds up the process of finding new vaccines. So the mRNA, what they're working on right now, there's so much computing power going into that and virtually simulating uh, different vaccines. Or for example, if you think about it, sequencing the DNA of the COVID strain without AI, that wouldn't be possible. On the other hand, if you look at the controlling or surveilling aspect of it, um, the, the country of Saudi Arabia right now is world leader in using AI to give back freedom to the people because they use smart technologies to control the infected versus the non-infected, which gives the non-infected much more freedom to live. Oh. And so if you look for answers, Saudi Arabia these days is a very good place to look. Hmm, that's really interesting. I just wanted to ask you another sort of personal question, if I could. You said in your notes that you sent along, and I'm going to quote you, plan your life as efficient as a Navy SEAL so that you have enough time for the unplanned things in life. Can you talk about what you meant yes. by that? Yeah. Most of my work life consists of uh, planning. And um, I realized a lot of things in life can be planned. And a lot of people who are not planning their life use a lot of time to redo or do things slower than if they would have planned it. Uh, for example, Christmas is coming. And when a lot of people realize on the 15th of December, they have to buy gifts, right? So a lot of stress occurs. So if you are able or anybody is able to differentiate about the things which can be planned in life, then you have so much more time to react to the things which are unplannable. I saw it the first time when we went to holiday and my parents always were fighting the day we went to holidays. And I thought as a kid, this is normal that people fight when we go to holiday. <laughs> so, and then, and then over the years, <laughs> I realized that if you would have just planted a little bit better, there wouldn't have been fights. And a lot of conflict in life, conflict in companies and families, what I see in psychotherapy, also in couples and relationships, stems from the fact that a lot of people don't plan the plannable. And uh, if you're a hiker, I don't know, if you were a rock climber, right? And when I was living in Switzerland, this was always, everything was about rock climbing. But when you go hiking in the mountains, the Alps, they are not forgiving. You go up and if you are not prepared, you die. Mm, yeah. And that's why the most professional people, they are all planned. And then you can enjoy, or to stay in the analogies of the Alps, you can climb higher mountains. <laughs> That's the real German in you coming out there on Scar. <laughs> I was kidding you, but I wanted to just change the direction here a little bit because you've done something else that's very interesting, specifically to me and, and to Harry and I, because this is what we're doing right now, which is a podcast. And for over a year now, you've been producing a weekly podcast called Pocket Guide AI. How did that title come about and briefly describe what motivated you to venture into the world of podcasting? Yeah, Pocket Guide AI, it's basically what it is. You know, when you go to a different city, let's say you're flying to Rome, what you're taking with you is a travel guide or a pocket guide. So you have a small booklet in your pocket 
and um, it's condensed information which guides you through a big eternal city. And that's basically what our podcast is. Executives don't have a lot of time and uh, artificial intelligence is a very complex issue, especially if you really want to live it in your company. So what we are doing, and when I say we, I don't mean this majestical uh, plural here. It's uh, I have a small group of panelists and we all met at the MIT course we did together. So what we are doing once a week is we grab one topic of artificial intelligence and uh, discuss it. So we slice and dice the complexity of AI and create with this uh, audio tour guide for an uh, executive. So if you listen to it once a week, you um, just get a grasp for what you have to do to be successful in the future. So since my parents and my grandparents were teachers, the teacher always comes through at the end of the half hour, you should have learned something. That's neat. Now, you've done a lot of stuff already. I don't even know how old you are, Anskar. Can you share that? <laughs> how old are you? Well, I feel sometimes like uh, 84, <laughs> but, that, but no, I'm at 43. So you've done a lot for the age of 43, it seems to me. So let me ask you this question. Even at that age, what would you say is your greatest accomplishment so far in your life and also your greatest regret? I must say, I mean, um, right now my wife is pregnant in the sixth month. Congratulations. And if you would have asked me last year, I would have said different things. But now I think my biggest accomplishment is actually uh, having this uh, child being slowly developing here. And on the personal side, you know, being married to my wife made me a better man. And uh, when I look at her, it's, it's, uh, I, I think that, uh, that she stayed with me for so long that that's a big accomplishment. <laughs> if I may interject for just a second, um, if you think your life is changing now, wait till that baby's born. You're, you're, you're going to write a whole new book. And I mean this in a very positive way. Yeah. I finished my book about artificial intelligence a few months back because I was afraid that I don't have time later on because uh, you're not the first saying that. Yeah. But I think otherwise my greatest accomplishment was when I created that software about um, fighting racism. Because my grandfather, as a German, he always told me, regardless of what you do in life, try to help to these things not happen again. So when you have this idea and suddenly your idea gets a form like an architect, and then you have scientific proof that this software or this online training actually works. So that was a good accomplishment. Is there a name for that training, Ansgar? Is there a name for it? Well, yeah, the company back then was called Goldblum Consulting. Well, the media called it digital face training, but for us, it was an intercultural training. And uh, when I was younger and I, I was living with, uh, I, I told Peter that, you know, Germans, we always go to America for one year. So back then I went to Hawaii where I was living with a lot of Asians or people of Asian descent and I had a hard time differentiating Asian faces. Maybe because I'm lacking something in my mind, but then I realized later on that I was not the only one with problems with other very different facial features. And this training really helps to reduce this feeling of uh, being different or you have this out-group effect that actually when Europeans go to Asia or Asians come to Europe, the first time they're very, very bad at detecting emotions, always this concept of emotions right now. And the thing is that you can still see positive emotions, but you don't see negative emotions so well. So basically, if you have a school 
where a lot of uh, people from around the world are together, these people will normally show higher rates of aggression and uh, not because they are by nature more aggressive, but they don't see, for example, fear or sadness or anxiety in the other face. So this natural inborn, I'm stopping when the other one looks hurt, is just not there. And it has no cultural meaning. It's just an inborn mechanism of your brain. And uh, I was fighting a lot with a lot of people about this issue because naturally people say racism is a cultural issue, you know, but scientifically it's not just that. It has uh, different layers and you can do something against it. Well, that's interesting too. When you said that, Anskar, I've done some work with uh, autistic children, autistic teenagers, and we are told as when we are being oriented that autistic people on the spectrum don't often recognize other people's emotions directly as well. It sounds like it sort of relates to that in a way. Yeah, actually, we were using it for autistic kids too. Ah, okay. Interesting. So it, it's the same thing. You can teach autistic kids. I mean, there are lovely applications nowadays for autistic kids or kids with Asperger's syndrome or something. And you can literally teach them and they might not feel it, but uh, when they're really trying, they can mimic social behavior. And that's already a lot you can ask for. Yeah. And listen, while we're on the topic of emotions, because I've had the opportunity to speak to you briefly a couple of times before... We met today just to exchange information. There's something that struck me in our brief conversations and even today when you touched on it, and that is when you talk about your grandfather, I've noticed there's something, and correct me if I'm mistaken here, there's something very special. You hold this man close to your heart, yes? Yeah, he was a big inspiration. And my grandparents were living next door. He was retired, so I spent most of my youth or childhood uh, with my grandparents. And um, he was a very special man. He was a poet and he spoke fluent Latin and Greek. And um, back in the day, in the 30s and early 40s, he was, he ran the German school in Bulgaria. Bulgaria back then just had been released from the Osman Empire. So for that time, he had traveled a lot and all this desire for traveling and exploring, but on the same page also, the love for history, that all came from him. Yeah. So I hold him very, very dear to my heart. And he told me when I flew to America, at that time, Yorit had a stroke. So he always dictated letters to my grandmother and she always had to send them to Hawaii. And then he told me that I was the first of all of the generations before who was able to leave the continent. Because even my great-grandfather, he wanted to go to America. And it was 1914. And uh, he actually made it to the boat. But then uh, the night before he should board the boat, he got uh, typhus. I don't know the British word for that, is it? So he got the disease and uh, he had to stay in Germany for two weeks to heal. But then the First World War broke out and young men were not allowed to leave the country. So he was very, very close to become a gold miner in America, but then he had to fight. And um, so, you know, in the line of a man, uh, I was the first to leave. So he always supported the cosmopolitan view, but uh, I owe a lot to him. 
So I think, you know, writing books and poetry and that, and it all comes from you. But let me ask you this final question about him. And this is more personal. The relationship you had with him, the way you speak of him and the way you go back to him in some ways, did that make his loss easier or more difficult for you? Well, I think losing him was one of the most difficult things I ever experienced. But in a way, he was very wise when it came to life. And uh, you always said that you can only pay forward. That means one generation helps the other to grow and to build something. And uh, by leading the life the way I do, I still pay respect to him. And, you know, people are never really dead until you forget them. So if you still live in a way that um, commemorates it and you can, on the other hand, you can always hold on to because if you have somebody in the past, which you hold on to dearly, it gives you roots. It gives you a feeling where you come from, not just locally, but also in time. And I see people who don't have connections to past generations. They feel a little bit lost. They're like a tree which you can move from place to place. But if you feel having roots, then uh, it grounds you a little bit. You know, Ansgar, when I was in Berlin many years ago in the 1980s, I felt the weight of history there in the city. The wall was still up at that point. And there were churches that were bombed out, half falling down, that were left in place after the war mm -hmm. as kind of a reminders of what war can do. And I thought that was incredible yeah. that the city itself decided to keep its history front and center to remind people of that because it's easy to lose sight and to forget the past in that way. You were raised in that culture, right? Where you were kind of saturated in that history as well as getting it from your grandfather. You got it from the very city that you've connected to. Exactly. The city and the country. I mean, you had concentration camps all over Germany. And when you talk to people, it didn't really make a difference if it was in Hanover or Munich or, or Köln. Because, I mean, the British, they had bombed whole Germany, right? Every city, over 100,000 people had been almost completely destroyed. So the scars, the architectural scars, as a reminder of what had happened, were still visible. And back then in the 80s and also early 90s, you still had a lot of people who had experienced the war. And although you had, as you said, living memories, it felt important to these people. It, it was more like group therapy. You know, when you went into houses, you saw in every chimney and uh, the picture of the fallen. Even my grandma, she had lost her first husband in the war and then she married again. Um, she still had the picture of the first husband front center and in the living room. But the um, problem is that here in Germany nowadays, that this needed focus on the Second World War, they can't really process, and that's what I'm feeling, you know, I'm just one person, but they can't really process that the world also moves on, that different actors entering the scene, that also Germany did not just start to exist in 1939. Our country is 2000, I mean, with a foundation of Germany, it's 2000 years old, or we have a city which, you know, which has a spear, which is 100,000 years old. And 
if you use the present and always measure the present by the Second World War, at a certain point, it doesn't fit anymore. And that's something what the Germans right now, which you feel when they say, oh, you have to be right, you are left. And it's like, it, it doesn't really fit anymore. The world is much more complex, multi-level than just putting everything on a linear scale between left and right. And so these are the two sides of the story there. Tremendously interesting, all of it. We could talk for probably for hours. We're going to wrap up the podcast at this point, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to discuss any events, your website, anything related to you, your work that you perhaps would like everyone out there to know. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much for, for giving the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, everybody who was interested in artificial intelligence, specifically people who are small and medium companies, who cares if Google can do AI or Facebook can do AI? If you have five employees, you know, you're not Google, but there are still ways that uh, you can be part of the AI experience. So come to Pocket Guide AI, pocketguide.ai. We have over 60 articles there uh, where you can already read about how to build AI projects, how to do AI teams, how to rebuild your company. We also have our podcast also on that website. And if you feel encouraged enough to really go this next mile, I would be very, very happy if you contact us at Goldblum Consulting. All the information are on the website for Pocket Guide AI. And uh, we would be all very, very happy to help you on your journey to become AI ready or to do AI projects. And uh, yeah, that's the pitch for Goldblum. <laughs> and just briefly, what is the name of the book that you wrote? Well, okay. And this one, I was not really uh, so creative. I also called it Pocket Guide AI. Okay. And so I basically summed up everything I knew from the last 15 years, what normally uh, the executive should know about artificial intelligence. This is something you can put in your office, like a telephone book back in the day. And uh, if you need something like a cookbook, you know, you take it out and uh, you can read about it. So I'm very, very excited when it comes out. Oh, it's not out yet. The second proofreader is on it now. So she said she's finished in five days and then we can start shipping it out. Okay, brilliant. Good luck with that. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. Ansgar, I don't even know where to begin. So I will actually end by saying just a sincere thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Unfortunately, we've got limited time. And so I just want to wish you well. And thank you so much for joining us this evening. Well, evening for you, afternoon for us and wish you all the best going forward. Yes, thank you. It was a pleasure, Scar. Well, thank you very much, you two. And to be very honest, the discussions we had before, it really made me happy. And my wife said, oh, you are so excited. Said, yeah, you know, every time I talk to Peter, it delights me. So thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Have a lovely evening. You too. Have a great weekend. Bye now. Bye-bye. Ciao, Harry. Ciao, Peter. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production, available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.